0: That's I-X-L slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This is a special episode of Transformative Principle, taken from the audio of the Cybertraps podcast. For several years now, I've been helping schools implement trauma-informed strategies in their schools. Now, as students are starting to come back to school, the need for this is greater than ever. Here's the thing. I'm not a social worker, and I don't pretend to be. So my training really focuses on practical strategies that you can implement in your school without making your teachers feel like they have to be social workers also. I help schools implement trauma-informed strategies so that fewer discipline referrals, fewer dysregulated students, and a calmer, more focused atmosphere. And the best thing is, this training aligns perfectly with ESSER funding, so you don't have to take it out of your school budget. My clients report that they have better sense of how to help their students without adding another thing to their plate. Go to jethrojones.com slash trauma to read more about it, and let's schedule a chat. That's jethrojones.com slash trauma. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal, all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings, everybody. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices.
0: Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, mental health. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing, and media, Professional training and public advocacy.
1: Hey there, Jethro.
0: Hello, Fred. Good to see you and hear you sound so crisp right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, nothing like a trip to the ironing board between (laughs) interviews. So there you go. Um, Jethro, it is always good to reinstall your software and make stuff work or use a Mac. <laughs> no, this is this is a nonpartisan operation.
0: Sure. That's right. That's right. Nonpartisan. Sorry about that. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that is quite all right. Well,
1: it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Mike Skinner today as our guest. Uh, Mike is a nationally known award-winning advocate, educator, writer, and critically acclaimed singer, songwriter, guitarist, and for the purposes of our show today, a survivor of horrific child abuse, addressing the issues of trauma, abuse, and mental health concerns through public speaking, writing, and his music. He has spoken at the National Press Club, was a keynote presenter for a conference held by the United Nations, the State Department, and Georgetown University on the sexual exploitation and trafficking of children and adults. And he was part of the groundbreaking Oprah Winfrey shows that address the issues of males sexually abused as children. His role as a consultant and trainer for the federal government's Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Center for Trauma-Informed Care and the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors has been crucial in helping to shape the policy initiatives and directives for the delivery and implementation of trauma-informed care and services. His music and advocacy website has been visited by well over a million people, and he is the founder and director of The Surviving Spirit, a nonprofit helping those impacted by trauma, abuse, and mental health challenges through the creative arts advocacy, education, a monthly newsletter and website. And we will, of course, provide the link to that in the show notes for this podcast. So I would urge people to add themselves to the seven figures who have visited. And Mike, I am just really honored to have your time today and, and have you contribute to this conversation. Thanks for joining us.
2: And thank you. I send that back to the two of you for what you are doing. So I'm always honored when folks have me to be a part of what they're doing to help raise awareness on all the matters that are of importance. So thank well, you. Well,
1: Mike, if I recall correctly, you and I met through Terry Miller, who founded the Stop Educator Sexual Abuse Misconduct and exploitation, okay. um, better known as Sesame. And you can visit that at sesamenet.org. So we've been working on this issue for a while now. It helped inform the work that I did on Cybertraps for Educators uh, back in 2015 and then the update uh, that just came out last year. Um, obviously, I think um, it's it's worth pointing out to our, our audience that the events that helped lead you to where you are right now, happened well before the cyber age, but the issues and the impact it had on you is still relevant, unfortunately, for kids who are going through this today. And so I think, you know, certainly your, your insights will be very valuable to people, both in the educational community and for parents as well.
2: Thanks. I sometimes try to understand how would I deal dealt with this back then as a kid when it was hard enough. But now with the whole internet thing and, and just the whole cyber thing, you know, my my kids are all raised adults, but obviously I gotta think about grandchildren, what's going on. So what you guys are doing, I mean that's great because this stuff is out there. It's it it hasn't stopped, even with all the raising awareness as, as folks have done in organizations the exploitation and the hurting of children and adults still goes on to this day. As a child, I did not understand why my parents would do what they were doing to me sexually, physically, emotionally, but also doing so with other adults and why this also took place at a church. Now, I cannot give you all the details. I can't because that's you know, the, how trauma works. You know, There's parts that are crystal clear and there's other parts that a cut off, but I always did remember um, you know, the taking of pictures. So now you have what you folks are doing back then. So I, I sometimes wonder how did these folks even connect back then, long before the internet? How did they find each other? I was born in 1954. So how did you yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, that's that's such a powerful question. And I'll tell you that when I was researching my first book, which is you know sadly relevant in some ways to the experience that you went through. It was called Obscene Profits about the rise of the online adult industry. And one of the things that I was trying to do in that book was to help people understand the role that technology was playing in changing the landscape. And so when you look back to the 1960s, the 1970s, which is the period relevant for you, you had people who were communicating via the back of really sketchy little magazines that were circulated in tobacco shops and under the counter in different places. You had word of mouth was very powerful. And you had people connecting in um, basically mailing lists with overseas producers and all the rest of that. But honestly, the real problem was that we began to see over that period of time, the development of technologies that allowed people to produce things at home. So those photos were probably Polaroids, Or, you know, they they would have maybe found a a film person because you could. I mean, there were people who advertised, you know, the development of those kinds of photos, but it was super risky. But again, home movies. Polaroids all of that made a big impact so you know i'm I'm deeply sorry that we're still talking about this 40 years 50 years later you know hopefully we can get some insight in terms of how parents and other adults should react
2: or or should be on the lookout for the kinds of things that happen to you I had a fourth grade teacher that I truly believe grasped what was going on because he had always asked me questions then he, Asked me, would I stay after school to help him? And at first it was like all excited, then it was like, uh oh, what's he want? You know, because my experience with adults, but he was actually a really nice man, a really good teacher. He was a Korean War veteran. My father was a Korean War veteran. So this this was like, you know, I'm nine, 10 years old. This man's really nice. And he, but he was asking me questions, lots of questions about my parents. Now I can't tell you guys specifically what he was asking, but he was it was always probing, but you know, you were just, I'll just say you were brainwashed, you know, to stay silent. And, but there was also the threats of what would happen. That's why when I talk or raise, try to raise awareness on this, there's an impact. I, I'm stronger now. I'm not afraid of them, but that impacts last with you a lifetime. So even back then as a child, when given that opportunity, I could not answer that man few years later, when I'm 12 and 13, I, you know, I start skipping school. There was a sergeant on the Berica, Massachusetts police force. He'd he stop and pick me up because he, he wanted to know about my delinquency. Years later, I, he was also asking me questions. So there, as much as I rail against those who didn't help or didn't do anything, there were people back then trying to help, but I was still stuck in fear. You come forward today, it's still the same thing. Kids today, teenagers, adults are afraid to speak. I can speak in mental health agencies, peer support agencies for folks dealing with mental health issues, and they'll come up to me after I've performed or shared or, what, or both talking, and then they'll pull me aside and say, I went through that. and But they were afraid to tell their counselor they're afraid to tell anyone because there's such a pushback there is there is a built in shame around it the society pushes on you there's a silence they expect and there's this stigma of you can't talk about this and then the repercussions i started breaking the family secrets back in 93 and 94 my siblings cut me off my friends cut me off not all but you know you're cut off from society I started raising awareness about the sexual abuse that impacted my life. I'd have mental health agencies who were hiring me to present or talk. Well, could you downplay the, you know, the abuse part? And you hear me, I'm not getting graphic. I just say to you, I was sexually abused as a child. You can connect the dots. But so these agencies were telling me to be quiet. And that still has not changed to this day. A larger part of society.
0: So, I mean, that piece there is unfortunate. Part of the issue, I believe, is that, one, people don't want to admit that these things are happening because it makes us feel out of control, which is certainly an issue. And as a school principal myself, being able to, to help kids through this process in a very minimal way because I'm not a therapist or anything like that, but being that adult who asks questions and tries to identify the signs, uh, it's really distressing to hear that kids don't want to tell what's going on because we could at least try to help if they did tell us. But by the same token, it's really difficult to actually get help to someone in, who's being sexually abused or and or physically abused. And it seems like the it is hopeless sometimes for us as outsiders to be able to help. What advice would you give someone who who is in that outside position and feels like, they can't do anything because one, there's there's no proof. And at least that we can tell, we just may have an inkling or a feeling. What advice would you give someone in that position?
2: School, start with school because, you know, most of us are going to school. It should be a place of safety. You know, we can get into the whole bullying aspect. That's another place. That <laughs> So survivors of abuse, they're going to school and they're being traumatized, re-traumatized again from bullies. So that really has to be addressed on all levels, but school should be a safety zone. And you're right. No teacher, no principal, no guidance counselor can really pull you out and save you unless there's proof, but validating and just showing that kid that you care for them as a human being, that fourth grade teacher. And now I'll jump forward when I'm you know senior and junior in high school I had a lot of rage. I was in a lot of fights. I was in the principal's office all the time. He also understood something. He'd he'd give me in, you know, in-house suspension or whatever, but he also helped me to graduate. But again, he didn't, he couldn't take me out of that home, nor could that fourth grade teacher. But they validated me as a human being. They understood as best they could. So I think schools that it has to be a place of safety. And I would defer to you folks on how you know schools operate and stuff, but pull in a panel of survivors, because I'm not the only one out there. Again, nothing about us without us. Have survivors or parents speak to this. What would make the school a safe place for kids who are being abused and neglected at home?
0: Well, and and I think that that's a really good, good place to start. And again, it's challenging because we don't want to expose all the other kids to this darkness that exists. But at the same time, we have to address it. And it's it's a delicate thing to do. And in my schools where we implemented trauma informed practices, we were at least able to take those kids who were struggling and provide some kind of support so that we weren't sending them back home into an abusive environment by keeping them out of school. And we were having them in school instead. Things like that, that that certainly helped. But that is a a touchy subject to be sure. And there's potential for backlash from parents about talking about it openly, especially with students. But certainly with having a panel like that with teachers would be be very beneficial to let them see that, that that's happening.
2: But I've also seen when I've gone into schools to speak, whether it's high school or college or university. I'd see these different posters raising awareness on things that in of itself is huge. So if all schools had that information and then they'll have a phone number or something. And I, I I do see the ones where it's the anti-bullying campaigns thing. So I just think more of that, more literature out there on the wall that so you're not having a conversation, but the kid is going to be seeing that maybe they'll pick up the phone someday.
0: To that piece, being able to recognize that bullying can take many different forms and An adult abusing a child is certainly child abuse, but that is also a form of bullying that you shouldn't discount that from the type of bullying that can exist. Go ahead, Fred.
1: Well, I just, you know, I wanted to follow up on on Mike's point a little bit because it seems that it gets to this idea of almost a, a conspiracy of silence with respect to sexual issues in our society unless it's being used to sell something and that seems to me to be one of the profound flaws with how we approach this and i guess mike and maybe this is just an obvious point that but if we could have more open honest discussions about sexuality in general that would help because it would take away some of the shame factor and then to your point, if and, and Jethro, you can weigh in on this. If we could have some kind of poster that that just basically like the suicide hotlines, you know, where there was a a, a static reference to a resource for kids where they could get that support in a trusted
2: environment, it seems like that would make a difference. Yeah, yeah. there's a series of things, and then. Just I started out as a straight A student, and then I was I passed high school by the you know the skin of my teeth. But my brother, who followed me a year behind, kept up his grades. Goes off into the air force. We're experiencing the same thing, but several years later, he's ending his life. So if you were looking at him, that the principal said, "Oh, oh, but his brother is such a model. You know, he, you know, he's got all the high grades. He's got this, that, and the other. Well, he's the one who's ending his life later on." as did another brother so there's no easy answer to this but at least having the conversation and then you know circling back to bullies you know I'm older I'm wiser a lot of my fights were against the bullies who were picking and then I just learned to fight back as I got old I realized those bullies they were coming from being bullied you know so right there that should be a red flag so if the kid in school is going around hurting other people that is saying something because that was taught to them, it's being done to them and they're just reenacting that. So I, I don't like what they were doing, but I also have empathy that, that that's coming from a place. It's the same thing with those who've committed crimes or in prison. There's all this rage that they never was able to work through. I was able to do it through music and drumming. I box for a while and just different things to get that out of my system, but finding different ways so the kids can channel this suppressed rage into a productive way. And again, there's many answers to that, but we're we're just scratching. Yeah. Well,
0: and you're bringing up a point that we often forget, especially during the pandemic, many of those extracurricular activities have been canceled and people aren't doing them. And My argument would be we should be canceling our main uh, courses, math, science, social studies, not because those aren't important, but because what's more important is everybody's mental health and being able to provide outlets for creativity, for rage, for frustration, uh, being able to do the things that bring peace, comfort, and healing to people, and we have essentially kicked all of those to the to the wayside, which I think is really an unhealthy response. That
2: we should be doing the exact opposite. I agree. You know, in my heart of hearts, I wish I just could have gone back to being a musician all the time. I was also in the music business, but life happened. The trauma came back to bite me, so. I'm still able to perform as a musician, but now I do this advocacy piece. But on that point of music, you know, because there's lots of great speakers out there. I'm not a PhD. I don't have this, that, and the other, but I have this life experience. I have learned a lot about trauma. I've taken a lot of classes, but I'm a musician. I can connect to people. So when I do a presentation, whether it's by, obviously, everything now is Zoom or any live event, whether it's 10, 20, or several hundred, that music was connecting us. I see that the same with friends of mine who are artists, regardless of the type of trauma or abuse that they grew up with. They're reaching people through their arts, their creativity. And that's one of the things that I really stress when I do present is all of us are creative and trauma disconnects us from that creativity. So finding a way to get back to that. So obviously in the schools, as I agree with you, that should not be cut from the schools because that is such an outlet for all for children, right up to adults.
1: Yeah, I actually, Mike, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you, but I spent ten years on a school board um, up in Burlington, Vermont. So a little farther north than you. But of course, you know, we were relatively small. I mean, the biggest city in the state, but truly not saying much as far as Vermont goes. And we were always grappling with these budgetary issues and. At the same time, you know, I'm, I'm friends with teachers and, and have teachers in my family, and there, there needs to be a real caution about mission creep for teachers, right? In the sense that we can't ask them to be everything within our society. And over the years, we have, one way or the other, dumped a lot of tasks on them. It does seem to me, though, that what could be useful is to have educators have at least a basic understanding of these kinds of issues and the things to look for so that they can point these kids in the right direction. This is not to ask teachers to be counselors or social workers because that is not what they're trained to do and I will beat that drum day in and day out even though I am not remotely a musician. <laughs> but that being said, I I just think as a society, we want teachers to be in a better trained position to help kids deal with these issues.
0: John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John JohnCat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says Stop Talking and Start Doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast.
1: Is this something you discuss in your advocacy? Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: I do. I'm always addressing the piece about music and the arts, whatever form they take. Because also trauma is disconnecting us. Music and the arts can connect us. So my example, many years ago, I used to do this little music group at a a mental health peer support center, folks struggling with real serious issues, trauma, and mental health. And again, it could go from 10 to 40 people. And this is the only place that they would go to for a cup of coffee and support, learn about job skills and all the rest of it. A lot of them then started attending the pubs and coffee houses that I was performing at. And I wasn't even thinking about that, right? That connection. And then it was the board and some of the other people said, Michael, do you understand what you're doing? I said, "Uh, I'm just reaching them as a musician. Michael, they're going out into the general public. And there was one place in particular I did a, a Sunday night, every Sunday night. And what was nice to see these folks, and you could tell because some of them had the shaking and all, all the rest of it. But the folks that were in this bar, and it, was, it, was, it wasn't a biker bar, but they were bikers, you know, but good bikers, some, some tough people. But they were interacting with those folks, buying them their sodas or fruit juices. They were now getting socially connected through music. Now, I'm not the only one doing it. There's others who are doing it on a grand scheme. Again, a lot of this, Fred, just came about just me being a musician. I'm like, oh, this works. Oh, this works. You know, so I didn't go into this with this grand design. I didn't. It just happened organically. And then the same thing with speaking, uh, at sharing some songs and people saying doing more songs. So I do, yeah, the creative part piece to this, I think, is so important and it's also missing.
0: And Fred, addressing your issue that you brought up about teachers being teachers, not counselors or therapists, and the trauma-informed training that I do with teachers, it is 100% you are not counselors. And in fact, that's one of my introductory statements is that one thing we get wrong in trauma-informed practices in schools is that we try to tell teachers that they are counselors or something that they're not. And their role as teacher is valuable and needed and they need to stay there. They shouldn't be going out and doing other things. They should be teachers and we should respect that and keep that solely on their plate and not add other things to it. And this is where, you know, another aspect of it is some kids are not into music and music does connect us. Some kids are not into art, but art does connect us. But there are a lot of other ways to bring people together and to find that connection through something positive and We I think it's incumbent on us in schools to find those ways to connect kids uh, to something positive and whatever that may be to meet their particular needs or interests is a worthwhile endeavor also.
2: I agree. And I agree with you on it's not the teacher's role, nor is it police role to do these things. My whole thing with the trauma-informed piece is just for someone to reframe it, thinking, what has happened to this person? What's going on in their life versus what's wrong with this child? What's wrong with this person? Even if they just get to that point, what has happened to them? That can change the whole the conversation or just even the mindset, how they're looking at someone.
1: Mike, um, just reading through your bio and, and thinking about some of the things that have taken place recently, one of the topics that I expect to write on at some point in the not-too-distant future is under a working title, hashtag Tech Sick Masculinity, which is about the impact of technology on men and maleness. And one of the things I think that makes your advocacy particularly powerful is that as much as our society has a challenge talking about sexual trauma and sexual abuse, it has an even worse time talking about it with respect to young boys. And so I'd, I'd love to get your comments on how that's played out in the work you've done.
2: It's it's still there, Fred. I, um, regardless of where I've been, as you just asked that question, I'm thinking of the um. I mean, he was ramrod straight. He looked like he just got out of Marine bull. He was the drill sergeant for the boot camp, but he was a retired police captain. And he come up and he, he thanked me for what I was doing. He says, but I, I could never say this. And I've heard this from countless other males. And I've heard, I there was a time in my life, I was working with troubled youth boys and stuff. And the few times that they did share, their counselors would tell them or those around them, that's in the past. You need to move on. So again, the message is being filtered down. Don't talk about this. But I, my thought was, if this kid has finally got the courage to speak up, I wasn't saying that at 12 years old or 14 or 15. So if these young men were doing it and then they're being silenced, that this still goes on. Now, when I say that, I don't paint everyone with that same brush, but that is a huge piece of it because- I also worked in some institutional settings again for troubled kids. And every time they would bring up whatever and it didn't have to be sexual abuse again they were being all they were being told is you're mentally ill. That's all they kept hearing because they're acting out, they had all these labels and yet all, in their charts was the trauma and abuse that these kids were growing up with. So for me I just keep speaking on it, writing about it, but also sharing because there are organizations who are doing it right. There are there's agencies, there's people that are doing it right, but I but we have to be able to talk about this is still going on today.
1: Do you feel like it made a difference to have the involvement of a celebrity like Oprah Winfrey for instance in
2: terms of raising awareness of this issue? It definitely helps It draws attention to it for a bit, but then, you know, and I understand she's got a, she's got a career. She's got a show. They move on to the next thing. This is not the next thing. You know, not every, you know, and she's spoken about her abuse, but not everyone's going to rise to this level. And that's another thing with the trauma-informed. There's too much, you know, comparing. Well, if Oprah got through this or Tyler Perry, why aren't you getting it through it? Because you don't know the the complexity of the trauma or the abuse that someone has had in their life. If they have had not any semblance of love in their life, they're going to be stuck and they're going to be spinning that wheel forever. But yes, to go back to the original question, it does help, but they need to sustain it and they have the funds, the means, the power, they could help sustain it. And I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but I, you know, it's like, it's the flavor of the month. We'll, we'll do this. And I I don't mean that in that way, but that's how it feels to us when we come forward and then. All right. Where's the follow-up because.
1: Yeah. That's it's a really good point, Mike. And, and it shows the, um, I think the. (laughs) terrible seductiveness of celebrity like it it seems like it's going to fix everything it's almost like Oprah Winfrey jumping up and you get healing and you get healing <laughs> except it doesn't quite always work out that way and it and it's a it's a long term investment to address some of these issues and i think that gets us back to this idea that we need to look at the institutions in our society that have been around for a long time, like schools, and figure out an effective way for them to contribute to identifying these kinds of concerns and
2: issues. One of the things also, and Jethro, when you were asking earlier about what can schools do, in most regions, I think nationally, there's always a sexual assault, domestic violence support center a lot of them are doing things going into schools. And if they're not, maybe ask them. But I, I can think of a place that's out in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they've done a lot of work for the past two decades going into schools, just and how they raise awareness. But I also under- know what you were talking earlier. A lot of times they don't want them coming into schools. So there's <laughs> this different. So there are those that are out there that have that expertise to help with these things in the school system that again it's not incumbent upon the teachers but reaching out to other agencies or organizations that are knowledgeable about these matters
0: well and and i think that the partnership piece is, is incredibly important it is not just not just partnering with celebrities for you know attention but partnering with other organizations within a community to provide full services to people who are struggling with this. And you said something a few minutes ago that I just thought was so powerful that some of these 12 and 13 year old boys are actually sharing their story. And you mentioned earlier that it took you until you were about 40. Is that right? Before you started talking?
2: 39 years old before I finally said it.
0: Yeah. And and that that is a long time to carry a burden that you can't share with anyone around you. And I know that there's somebody listening to this right now who's who's carrying that. What would be your advice to somebody who is carrying that to, to feel comfortable to say something to anyone? Because it can be so scary to talk to a, a trusted adult, uh, a friend, or anybody else. What, what advice do you have for people in that situation?
2: If it's males, I would uh, kindly suggest, kindly, strongly suggest Looking at one in six organization, it's a nonprofit, just one in six, one number in six number, and male survivor, two separate organizations. That's a great place for resources. Rain and my, my brain is stopping me, but rain for males and females, and but there's several other really good nationwide agencies out there that they can reach out to. And they can be anonymous. They can go on anonymous and just, but even if they look at the effects of what the abuse has done to them, that might be the light bulb moment that they need. need Because I was just as guilty as so many others all through my life, thinking, thinking it to myself, wasn't saying it to anyone else, that well, that's in the past. I got to forget about this, and I did everything I could to forget about it. You can't forget about it because it's always with you. And then I finally had to deal with it. it you know, I had no other, It just it hit me so hard. I had to. the The flashbacks just became so overwhelming. You were talking earlier about the Polaroids. So it's not like I had repressed memory. I suppressed my memory. I did not want to deal with this, but I always had those Polaroid snapshots in my head, and then. The age thirty nine, it just it became a movie.
1: I, <laughs> Mike, that's a brilliant metaphor. <laughs> yeah, it
2: became yeah, it's like it was a movie. I didn't want to watch. <laughs> I didn't. I'll be honest, I didn't. I I was married. I I had five kids. I had my own music business. I was still drumming on the weekends. Why do I want to look at this stuff? But it does impact because I was also a workaholic. It kept me disconnected from others. I was always go, go, go. Now I can have a conversation with you guys. I can connect with other people. I can have a cup of coffee and sit there or a cup of tea or maybe a beer and just sit there with someone, have a conversation, not be looking at my watch. Well, I got to go now. And then later on, I'm saying, I wish I'd stayed with them, but I never felt good about myself. So there is power in healing and it's, Every one of us are going to find a different way there, but and again, you don't. Sometimes you don't have to share, but I just being with others. You know, my first support groups is going to adult children of alcoholics. You know, there was this camaraderie. We all had maybe different experiences, but it was impacting us. So, childhood sexual abuse. So males, they're gonna they're gonna find their kindred spirits. They're gonna find whether it's the CEO or the guy that's pounding nails, you know, building a house or Musician, it's all walks of life. It does. It's impacted all of us. So I would start with those organizations. I think it's
1: it's really super
2: impressive that
1: we do see more and more organizations starting up or doing this work. You're a little bit older than I am, Mike, and I just think back to my childhood, and these organizations did not exist you know, nobody was out here doing this stuff. And we, we'll put a bunch of stuff in the show notes, but it does seem appropriate to let everybody know that a place to start is the National, National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is 1-800-656-4673. And that does allow for anonymous reporting conversation. It can be a place to start to get help if that's something uh, someone needs.
2: Yeah. And in a lot of states, there's little support groups. I, You know, I was born in Boston, but lived in Massachusetts, then moved to New Hampshire. But I used to drive the hour and a half into Boston to attend a support group for survivors of those who've been abused, sexually abused as children. It was just worth it for me to have that camaraderie, even if I was just silent, even if I was just listening to other people, just that support and being validated. Again, as I shared earlier, what disconnected, this was helping me to reconnect with people.
0: Well, and that's that's a piece that is so important in a place like a, a school, a church, and any place that can provide that connection is going to be important. And it's even worse as you were saying that this happened in a church, in a place that should be providing appropriate connection and it doesn't. And so you know, there's there's definitely a lot of work to do. And I don't think that this problem is ever going to go away. There's going to be evil people all the time. And we need to do our best to prevent kids from being exposed to that. And when we know about it, then getting them out of those situations as a priority.
2: I agree. But fortunately, the evil people, are the minority, there's more good people in the world. So I always... You know, I'll share about you know, what's wrong, but I there's also so much that is good because I truly believe there is hope, there is healing, and there is help out there. So I'll I will speak to the stuff that's not working, but I also I see the good. Even with myself, I don't get a million so you know, clicks on my website anymore. But when I first came out, I was maybe one of maybe a hundred males out in out there doing. So that was huge. That I think would help get that initial interest in me and also addressing the mental health, the depression as a male. Now, the landscape, there are hundreds of males and females out there now talking, especially more so with the males who have found there's a lot who have they have stepped forward and they've created their own podcasts, they're writing books. They've got blogs, they're just, or they got a Facebook group, or they're just speaking out. And so so that's where I do see we're breaking down those silos of silence.
1: Well, it's interesting, Mike, because I think what you're doing is pointing to the dichotomy that we talk a lot about on this show that technology does prevent. Uh, or does present some additional risks, right? Your particular circumstance arose within the home for teachers who cross that particular boundary, you know, their path to doing so is facilitated by smartphones and cell phones and all the rest of it. But at the same time, There's tremendous potential for building community using these cyber tools. I've seen it time and time again in terms of people creating the kinds of groups that you're talking about or using their voice or using their blog, partly in self-therapy, but also partly
2: in education and
1: advocacy like you yourself are doing.
2: Yeah, because myself as an independent musician... I could have never had this reach a couple decades ago if it wasn't for the Internet. So I am grateful for, for the good that it brings that I can reach a lot more people than I could have just trying to tour New England.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I would love it if uh, if you'd be comfortable playing us out with a song. I mean, we're pretty much at the end of the podcast. Are you uh, willing to do that?
1: And as a fellow Bostonian, I was going to be pushy enough to ask that myself. <laughs> so you're a Bostonian, too. All
2: right. Cool. 1963 Richardson House. Yep. Okay. I, I always say when I'm going back to Boston and Cambridge, that's where I live. I go, I'm, always, I'm returning to the scenes of the crimes. <laughs> but I, I also Every, like it. Everybody right. says that about Boston. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is uh, songs for the keys to your life. All the rhymes and it's all that you see. What's made of gold, nothing so cold. And have so forgotten your dreams. Even know, oh, even care. Yeah. When did you drop the keys? Keys, your dreams, and music to your soul. The keys to your life Songs to the keys to your life And you sung the song Of the keys to your life Wasted away Of yeah, what's there to say Of all the things that you love now all I see is broken inside Love only only your wealth And now the dream Glaciers schemes, climb your way to the top Look around and what do you see Wasteland of all that you love. Songs of the keys of light Songs of the keys of light Songs of the keys of light
0: Thank you. That was great. Thank you.
2: <laughs>
1: that was wonderful, Mike. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for asking me. <laughs> oh, well, it was a wise and inspired request. <laughs> it's come off really well, and I appreciate your time.
2: Thanks.
0: Yeah, and I've got links to the, the things that we talked about in the show notes uh, that people can find on the website. And uh, just thank you so much for being here, Mike. Your story is really uh, inspiring of how you're able to overcome. And we appreciate you sharing that.
2: Well, thanks again, guys, for what you're doing. Thanks for having me again. Hey, middle school principals. What if I told you that all your teachers had to do to teach your students really valuable social and emotional competencies was just press play in control. SEL is a fully automated video curriculum that teachers and students absolutely love. And that's because it's easy and it looks just like a Netflix or a YouTube show. So all you have to do to hear about how it can completely transform your school is schedule your call. Tell us Jethro sent you and you'll get 20% off if you feel like it's a good fit. So go now to www.InControlSEL.com slash strategy call to schedule your call today. The link will be in the show notes.
0: Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments, you can do it all. But don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. visit myflexlearning.com/be to learn more and receive $500 off your first year that's myflexlearning.com/be